The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Thessalonians. And this morning we're going to be looking at just verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2. And in these verses, Paul shares his deep desire to be with these people that he loves so much. You know, hopefully as we're reading and going through Thessalonians, you're starting to get the picture of these people. Paul loves these people. They love him. These are, these are not your average Christians, okay? These people are committed to the Lord. They're, they're very young in the Lord. They're not even a year old yet, yet they are sold out. And Paul wants to be there, but due to reasons beyond his control, he says he couldn't come to them. So he sends his disciple Timothy, and Timothy spends some time there teaching and encouraging them in the faith. And then Timothy returns to Paul with the good news. Hey, the Thessalonians are doing amazing. They trust God. They're walking in love. So Paul wrote this letter to them rejoicing in their commitment to discipleship. He's just excited about what's going on in their lives. Now, it was most likely Timothy that learned that they were, there were enemies in Thessalonica who were attacking Paul's motives with these new converts. All right, And they're saying things like, oh, Paul really loved you guys. He wouldn't have left so soon. And he certainly would have come back by now to help you and encourage you and strengthen you if he loved you. Paul doesn't even care about you. So Paul is refuting these charges in 2, 17 through 20, using highly emotional language. He, like I said, he really cares about these people. And I'll tell you, when you read this in English, it just doesn't do justice. Okay? It really doesn't. So I'm going to try to help you see this a little more today. But verse 17 and 18 says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly to be with you, desiring to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. So he said, but since we were torn away from you, now the we here is Paul and Silas and Timothy, all of whom departed Thessalonica because of some intense opposition. If you remember, they they took Jason and they dragged him before the magistrates and they he had to put up a bond, you know, and so they were forced to leave town quickly under the cover of darkness. And Acts 17.10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They said, Paul, you've got to get out of here. It's just, it's not safe here. You need to leave. And they basically, the Christians chased them out, get out of here. They went to Berea. Now, the Greek word translated here, torn away from, is aporphanizo, which is used of being orphaned. Okay? This is his only use in the New Testament. And unlike the modern term, the word orphan could refer to children who had lost their parents, but it could also refer to parents who had lost a child. They were both considered orphaned. Now, the verb elsewhere in the Greek would in the Greek world, refers to, it's only used of orphaned children. So it's likely that Paul is picturing himself that way. We were orphaned. We were torn away, he says, from you. And if you can imagine, you know, what happens when someone is orphaned. It's, it's a painful thing, and that's what Paul's trying to say here. This was a difficult thing. 
And it kind of fits what he said back in 2.7. You remember where he says, yet we became infants in your midst. You know, the word there is gentle in most translations, but that's not a good translation. Napios, we became infants. And he's saying, as an infant, I've been torn away from you. I've been orphaned. And there's some real pain here. He wants them to know this is not an easy thing. He says, brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart. By calling them brothers, he is saying, we're family. Believers, we need to understand that. We are family. And family needs to be together. Family needs to encourage and support and strengthen one another. That's what family's about. And it's interesting, he says, we've been torn away for a short time. Now, literally in the Greek here, it says, for a season of an hour. So it expresses, I think, his intention, his desire to get back there as soon as possible. I'm not, this is not going to be a long time. We're going to get back there. They've been absent physically from the Thessalonian believers, but he says not spiritually. In person, but not in heart. In other words, we're with you. We're with you. You're in our prayers. You're in our thoughts. We're only physically separated. He carried these churches in his heart. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. The word endeavor here is the Greek word spudadzo, and it means to make every effort to labor, to be diligent. The verb speaks of intensity of purpose followed by intensity of effort to realize that purpose. In other words, I don't just want to be there. I'm making plans. I'm doing everything I can do to figure out how can we get there. Now, the phrase with great desire is the Greek word epithumia. Anybody recognize that word? Epithumia. It's most often translated lust. And it's used in a pejorative sense most of the time, but rarely, as it does here, it's used in a positive sense. And Paul says, you know, with great lust, I'm just craving to see you. Paul's desire to see them is kind of graphically portrayed in 3.10. He says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. They not only intensely wanted to see them, but as I said, they made plans. They had an action plan put together, but they were unable to carry it out because Satan frustrated their plans. He says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Now, Paul uses we in verse 17 and 18, emphasizing Timothy and Silas. But now, all of a sudden, he says, I, Paul. And he wants to make sure that the Thessalonians understand, listen, I want to be clear about my own personal desires. I want to be there. I don't care what anybody's saying about me. I want to be there. And he tried over and over, he says, again and again, I wanted to be there. It just didn't work out. He couldn't reach the goal because Satan was hindering him. Now, this tells us that all of Paul's plans didn't work out. Okay, He's, His desire was to be there, but it didn't work out. You know, if Paul's plans didn't work out, and his plans are spiritual, okay? He's not, you know, planning a vacation to get away from it all. He's planning on serving and ministering. But his plans didn't work out. He says something very similar to the Romans in one thirteen. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I want to be there. So believers, don't get frustrated when your plans don't work out. Because if your plans aren't God's plans, it's okay. You don't want to do your plans opposed to God's plans and 
God, Paul's just saying, hey, I, this is my desire. It just didn't work out. We need to learn to just trust in Yahweh's plan. And Paul was, but he was like, I'm going to get there one way or the other. I'm going to keep trying. I know they need me. But then he says this, Satan hindered us. Now, here's a question that I want to know. How did Paul know it was Satan that was hindering him? Some guy with a pitchfork and red horns show up on the path and say, turn around. Okay, watch this. Acts 16.6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, (laughs) here it says that the Holy Spirit forbade them from preaching the word. Does that sound like something the Holy Spirit would do? Not to me. I mean, the Holy Spirit's supposed to encourage them. But Paul says, listen, the Holy Spirit forbid us from going into Asia. And now he says, Satan hindered us. How did he know the difference? Well, he's a man who walked with God, so obviously he knew the difference, and he makes a distinction here. Holy Spirit said no. Here, Satan's hindering us. Either way, he didn't get to do what he wanted to do, but I just I thought it's interesting. How does this man know? Hopefully he's just as in touch with God so he understands what's going on. Now, the Thessalonians were mostly Gentile converts. And yet, when Paul mentions Satan here, he doesn't go into any further explanation. He just says, Satan hindered us. And I think that shows that in just a few weeks he was there with them, he taught them much about Satan and spiritual warfare. He taught them about so many things in that short time, and they obviously grasped it. Okay, They were hanging on, they understood. So he doesn't need to explain what he's talking about Satan. Now, the Thessalonians might not have needed an explanation who Satan was, but I dare say that the modern church sure does. Okay? They really do. I mean, we're just Bible ignorant today, you know, which is sad. And it's something you can prevent on your own by just reading the Bible on a regular basis. Read through it, read through it, read through it. You know, you'll get, you'll get familiar with it. Okay? So let's talk for a little bit about Satan this morning. Let's talk for him about the next 45 minutes. Okay? Let's start at the beginning. In the far reaches of eternity past, Yahweh always existed. I don't know about you, but I can't can't really wrap my mind around that. No beginning. Always. Okay? Yahweh being the three persons of the divine trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God always existed. Then at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods, lesser gods, and angels to be part of his family. He wanted a family, he created them. He created the divine council, and they were his family. And Satan was one of those lesser gods that God created. Then at a point in time, God created the earth and he created man. But when he created earth and created man, the Bible says the sons of God were there and rejoicing. So they're already there before man's created. So God created this family, a spiritual family. Then he created us to be part of his family. Now, when it comes to beings such as Satan, the devil, demons, unclean spirits, there's basically three positions held by believers today. Okay? Position number one. Satan is not a real spiritual being, but instead is merely referring to a personification of sinfulness in the human heart or to wicked human beings. So they don't believe in a, the existence of a devil. The devil is just your bad side, okay? Or, you know, your own sinfulness in your human heart. Okay, that's position one. Position two, 
Satan, demons, unclean spirits are real beings that are still very active in the world today. Okay, they're still bothering you constantly. Position three, Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings, but they were all defeated and destroyed in AD 70. Now, those who hold the view one, again, Satan's a real being. I mean, Satan's not a real being, and he's a personification of your sinfulness. Now, they would say that Satan is merely your own eternal, sinful nature, your own inclination to sin. But how does that fit with what the Scriptures say? Okay, that's the problem. We gotta, and again, when you're dealing with Scripture, you've got to take the whole of Scripture and say, how does this fit in with what the Bible says? Well, let's start by looking at a verse from the Tanakh and see, is this, is this a personification? Is this human nature, evil human nature? Deuteronomy 32.17. It says, They sacrificed to demons, all right, that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. Now, here the word demons is the Hebrew word shade. And these demons are called gods. This is the Hebrew Elohim. All right? Now, the ESV here says no gods. But the word no gods here in Hebrew is Eloah. And it should be translated, not God. That's how the New American says they sacrificed the demons who were not God. Okay? They're not the God. So demons are here called Elohim. This is very important. Because I believe that all uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. To me, this alone destroys view number one. The Bible talks about Elohim, and Elohim are always referred to as spiritual beings. So there is a spiritual being. It's not a personification of your sinfulness. They're spiritual beings called Elohim. Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world. So if they're called Elohim, they're not of the physical realm. They're spirit beings. Men are never called Elohim unless... They're dead. You say, dead men are called Elohim? Yeah, why? Because if you're a believer and you're dead, where are you? In the spiritual realm. Okay, now you're Elohim. You're no longer in the physical realm. You're in the spiritual realm. Okay, very important. All right. Well, let's look at what the Scripture has to say about Elohim, because this is, this is important. All right? I think, it, I think this alone destroys this whole argument of number one. Elohim is used... 2,606 times by the New American Standard. Elohim is the plural of El, which comes from a root word meaning might, strength, power. God is called El. They're mighty, they're powerful, they're strength. Elohim is plural of El, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Hebrew nouns ending in I-M are plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. And we know this from Hebrew grammar. So Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. You don't know if it's singular or plural unless it's used in a context, right? Because what's the plural of sheep? <laughs> what's the singular of sheep? Sheep. Okay, you get the picture then, right? All right, same thing. Same thing with the Hebrew word. Now, in the very first use of Elohim in the Bible is found in Genesis 1.1. And there the verb bara 
identifies the subject of the verb as masculine. It's Bereshit bara Elohim. And so we know it's, it's plural, but it's talking about singular. All right? Now, many people think that Elohim is another name for Yahweh. But it's not, okay? Yahweh, his name is Yahweh, okay? He is an Elohim, but his name is Yahweh. Elohim is used in Scripture for many others besides Yahweh. But it's only used of those in the spirit world. Yahweh is called Elohim over 2,000 times, as in Genesis 1.1. We know that Yahweh is called Elohim, but he is not the only one. It's used of the gods of foreign nations, Look at 1 Kings 11.33. Because they have forsaken me and worship Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Amorites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, his father, did. Now here, goddess and god are Elohim. All three of these are Elohim. Now, for those of you who think that Elohim is the only God, look with me at a very familiar text in Exodus 20, the Decalogue. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh. That's my name. I'm Yahweh, your God. Who's he talking to? Israel. I'm your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, we know that's Egypt. We know that's Israel, right? He brought him out of the land, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so he's saying, I'm Yahweh, I'm your God, don't have other gods. Well, there's no other gods, so you can't have other gods, right? What, what is God talking about here if there's no other gods? Don't have, I don't know. <laughs> there has to be other gods because he's saying, don't have any before me. And in many other texts he says, listen, those other gods, they're for the nations. I'm your God. He makes that very clear. He alone is Israel's God. Other nations, they had their Elohim, but Yahweh was the Elohim of Israel. Now, the angelic watchers, as Daniel calls them, the watchers, the divine council, they're called Elohim. Psalm 82. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) It says, God has taken His place in the divine council. This is a good translation, ESV here. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, both God, capital, and God's little g here are both Elohim. It's speaking of the divine council, speaking of the watchers. The New American Standard mistranslates the second Elohim as rulers. And that's just a translation. They said, let's put this rulers here, because we think it's referring to men, which is a dumb translation. Okay, Verse 6, I said, you are Elohim. Sons of the Most High, all of you. All right, again, they're Elohim. Now, and then he says this, Nevertheless, like men, you will die. If these Elohim were men, how come he says you'll die like men? That's kind of makes sense, right? If they're men, they're going to die like men, but they're gods. And God said, I'm going to take away your immortality. I'm going to judge you for that. He's going to judge these disobedient watchers. Now, Elohim, as we, we saw, is used of demons. It's used of these false gods. But here's one that surprises most people. Speaking of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 28, 13, it says, The king said to her, he's talking to the witch of Endor, Do not be afraid. What do you see? Remember, he says, I need to talk to Samuel, man. You've got to do something. Get Samuel up here for me. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God. I see an Elohim coming up out of the earth. Now, here, 
the God that she sees is Samuel. He's dead. He's in the spirit world. He's coming up out of the earth. All uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spirit beings. I've said this so many times that people always want to refute this. And I, you please try, okay? But please use a little common sense when you try, okay? Because one of the dumbest verses that people bring to me is this verse in Exodus 4.16. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. He's speaking to Moses here, right? And so they say, see, Moses is called Elohim. Is he? Is, he, is Moses called an Elohim here? He shall be as Elohim. He's functioning as an Elohim here. Meaning that Aaron was to speak for Moses, who was as God to Pharaoh. Aaron was Moses' mouth. He spoke for Moses like a prophet is someone who speaks for God. So Aaron's like a prophet. Moses is like a god. If Moses is an Elohim, then Aaron's a mouth. He's not an Elohim. And I just, I have to try to be patient when people bring me this verse because I'm like, really? That's the best you can do? As Elohim. All right? Another verse that's used to question Elohim, it's that Elohim only refers to those in the spiritual world, is texts like here in Exodus 22. And I can more understand these texts. Because, again, improper translation. Exodus 22, 7 and 8. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, all right, you give your neighbor, so, hey, hang on to my money. I'm going to go on a trip, or here's my stuff. Keep an eye on this while I go on a trip. And it's stolen from the man's house. You get home, and the guy, your money's all gone. Someone stole it all, okay? If the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges. That's Elohim. should never be translated judges. To determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's money. What is the purpose of bringing him here? See, the translators wrongly translate this as judges. And how, let me ask you this. How are human judges supposed to determine who stole the money? But if you bring him before God, I think God knows, right? And that's the whole idea here. The Faith Life Study Bible, which is a good free resource of Logos, says this. The plural in this passage, and in 21.6, may indicate that God refers to human judges of Israel, chapter 18. But this is not supported by chapter 18, where the judges are never referred to as Elohim. All uses of Elohim in chapter 18 refer to the God of Israel. Now, the English Standard Version translated it as God and not judges. You shall bring them before God. Look at verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, or for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before Elohim. He whom Elohim condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. In both cases, Judges here is translated from Elohim. And again, the Faith Life Study Bible says this. The idea of God condemning the guilty party recalls other contexts where God's will was determined through casting lots. Though the method of discerning God's will is not outlined here, God often makes His will known during a decision-making process. 
Since the scenario here is very similar to the one that follows in verse 10, God's will may have been determined by an oath taken in the name of Yahweh on the presumption that God would reveal and condemn the one who took his name in vain. Okay, so in verse 10 and 11, he says, If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt, is driven away, no one is looking, the oath, an oath before Yahweh shall be made by the two men. Now, this is not Elohim, this is Yahweh here. All right, so that's very clear. Who laid their hands on the neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall make restitution. So for them to take an oath, they come to take an oath before Yahweh. These human judges can't determine this kind of stuff. They're, they're not omniscient. They don't know this. But God does, and that's the idea. They would take this oath. So Elohim, again, is not used of humans unless they have died and are in the spirit world. Elohim is a place of residence locator. It's called Elohim. You know where they live. Okay? You know where they're living. All right? So to make Satan a human and not a supernatural being is to go against the clear language of Scripture. They're called Elohims because they don't live in the fleshly world. They're not part of this world. They're spirit beings. All right, let's move on into the New Testament. In Matthew 4, 1, it says, Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, here's the question, according to view 1. Is this Yeshua being tempted by his own sinful nature? Do you remember what view one says? It's a personification of sinfulness in the human heart. To me, that's an attack on the deity of Christ. Okay? You say that, oh, Christ is fighting with his sinful nature here? No, it's Yeshua, he's led, and then you got a devil, you got somebody else there. He's not being tempted by his own sinful nature. You know how I know that? He didn't have a sinful nature, okay? He was sinless. The Bible strongly talks about this over and over. Philippians 2.7 He emptied himself, kenosis, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The key here is the word likeness. Homoioma. Homoioma means similar, but different. What's the difference? He didn't have any sin, okay? His humanity was genuine. He was different from all other humans in that he was sinless. Okay, we see the same Greek word used in Romans 8, 3. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Homoioma. Similar but different. He didn't have sin. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Though his humanity was genuine, he was different from all other humans in the fact that he was sinless. We see the same Greek word used in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For his own sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Alright? Christ didn't know sin. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who was able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeshua can't be tempted by his own sinful nature because he didn't have a sinful nature. Okay? Is Christ being tempted by wicked humans? Because they say Satan also can refer to just wicked people, right? 
most would say that Christ's adversaries were the Jews. Well, we'd agree with that, right? Well, could Satan here represent the Jews? Look at this text. Again, the devil, or we could say the Jews, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, the Jews are saying to Christ, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Let me ask you this. Would the Jews ask Christ to worship them? Does that make any sense? No. Okay, how about this? Is Christ carrying on a conversation here with himself? Throughout the context, the tempter, the devil, is given personal attributes that clearly distinguished Yeshua from being another person. They've got two people here talking. All right? Nowhere in this context do we get the idea that the devil is merely referring to a sinful human nature of Christ. And think of this. It, it, here's how ridiculous it is. A sinful nature within Christ demanded Christ to worship Christ, and if he did, Christ would give Christ the nations. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, that clears it up. Satan offering Christ the nations is not an empty promise. He was ruling the nations. Sinful human beings could not make this offer to Christ. Now, those who deny the existence of Satan or demons want to make everything the result of natural occurrences. Bishop Lightfoot falls into this category. He says, Unclean spirits and demonic possession seem to be no more than physical and mental illness. Well, Mark makes a clear distinction between demons and illness. He dealt with both. He says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. So you got a contrast. You got demons and you got sickness. They weren't casting out mental illness. All right? So, view one, I think, is unbiblical. I think it just doesn't understand the whole you know, divine council worldview, and that's the fact that these other gods and the fact that the divine council. I think that modern science has caused many believers to question anything that they can't explain that's spiritual. To those of the ancient Near East, everything was spiritual. All right, to us, nothing is. If someone believes in God and angels, why would it be hard to believe in Satan and demons? I don't, you got God, but no Satan, no, 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 there's no adversary. All right, verse 2, which is probably the most popular of the views. Satan, demons, unclean spirits are all real beings. They're still very active today. This is by far the predominant view. You ever been to a charismatic church? I guarantee you'll hear more about Satan than Yeshua, okay? They assume this. If it's in the New Testament, it should be happening today. That's a bad assumption, Okay. But as you read through the Gospels, you clearly see many encounters with Satan. So, hey, you see it in the Gospels, we should see the same thing today. No, let's look at some of these. Mark 1, 23 and 24. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Yeshua of Nazareth? <laughs> Yeshua comes walking in the synagogue and this man cries out, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wow. 
That's quite a testimony, isn't it? So he got this unclean spirit. The word unclean here is a katharos, and it, it means evil, okay? He's unclean. The spirit is from Numa. So it's a spirit is in a different realm, okay? A spirit being can appear, they can disappear. They don't have physical bodies like we have. In Luke 24, 39, says, See my hands and my feet, the Lord's talking, that it's I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So a spirit's not made up of physical material. They have a body. It's a supernatural, spiritual body, which can appear, it can disappear. It can walk through walls. It can walk through crowds. It can do all kinds of Neat stuff. Can't do that yet. You have to wait till you get in your spirit bodies. Back in Mark 1, there's this unclean spirit. He's in the synagogue, and he disrupts the service. And what's interesting here is the, possess- the possessive pronoun, their synagogue. This indicates this man is not a regular. All right, These demons didn't normally come to the synagogue, but they're there that day in Capernaum. And this unclean spirit is what we call a demon. comes from the Greek word demonion which, according to Thayer, means a divine power, a deity, a divinity. Notice that this demon recognizes both Yeshua's humanity and his deity. He said, Yeshua of Nazareth, that's his humanity. Holy One of God speaks of his deity. It's interesting to me that 2,000 years later, people are still arguing about the deity of Yeshua. The demons got it right. They knew who He was. This is God in the flesh. They knew that. They also understood that there was nothing they could do to keep Yeshua from taking authority over them. They were afraid of Him. Look at Psalm 78. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Now here, Yahweh is called the Holy One of Israel. And calling Christ the Holy One is clear reference to His deity by no one less than the demons themselves. Now, in the ESV, it appears that this demon is asking a question. Okay? But this is a statement. It's not a question. You can see that in the Young's Literal. It says, Thou didst come to destroy us. It wasn't a question. He, the, in ESV, it says, have you come to destroy us? Is that why you're here? We're not sure about why you... No, he said, oh, you came to destroy us. The demon understood what Yeshua was there for, and they knew what time it was, okay? In Mark 1.26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. This demon obeys the words of Yeshua. And here Mark is demonstrating Yeshua's authority over the fallen world, the spirit world. He commands them, and they do what they say. He says... Yeshua will himself later point out with this proof that Satan in his strength is being defeated. And that could be the only by the Spirit of God. 12.28, it is by the Spirit of God that, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, in order to really understand how these people would have processed this, you have to understand that in the first century, They saw demonic spirits as involved in everything bad. Some, I mean, charismatics still do this today, okay? It's not a whole lot different. They treat it differently, but the whole thing is kind of the same. If you had a disease, it's a demonic spirit. 
If you had a tragedy, it's a demonic spirit. If you had mental illness, it's a demonic spirit. The demons were under every rock. They were responsible for everything that happened. There's a book out called The Diary of an Exorcist by Wynne Worley. It sounds just like demons everywhere. I mean, your car handle, bushes, are high. they're just everywhere waiting to pounce on you and get you. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's quite incredible how many demons, you know. But that's a popular view today. And they were responsible for everything bad. And they understood there's nothing we can do about this. They just had to live with it. And it tortured these people. And listen, during the first century, the demonic activity was extremely high because God is walking on earth and they're trying to stop what's happening here. So this is a period like no other. And just so you understand how desperate they were, they entered into a practice called trupanning. And basically, that meant that while the person was alive, if they reached the point of torture that they just couldn't stand it any longer, they'd take a drill and they would drill a hole in their skull so that the demons could escape. I guess they can't get through bone. Yeah, I don't know how they got in there, but they would drill a hole in people's heads to let the demon out. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant, especially back in that day. You know, get an old drill, one of those hand drills, and just you know, start cutting through your skull. But it gives you some idea of the level of the desperation they live with. And historians have dug up cemeteries from the first century, and they found that about 5% of the skulls had a hole drilled in them. This was a significant thing to them. And then along comes Yeshua, and now we have a solution. Okay, because he t- speaks to these demons, and they leave. End of problem. And they were just stunned that suddenly Yeshua identified himself as the one who could solve their problems, the one who could remove the demonic spirits, the one who could deal with the issues of their lives. And Mark says that the word about Yeshua spread immediately. You can imagine, hey, we got, we got a solution now. Someone can help us with all this stuff we're dealing with. Well, what about demons today? I mean, again, many of the charismatics, they don't think anything has changed since then. They still got demons everywhere. Do we need to be worrying about them? Because they spend a lot of time worrying about this stuff. I'm sure you understand this, you know. And the answer to the question would be different depending on who you ask. If you ask the charismatic, they'd be, oh, yeah, they're very active today. I think that most of churchianity believes that demons are just as active today as they were in the Bible. Just as big a problem. One reason for this is they don't understand audience relevance. They don't understand the transition period and the change of the ages. So they, it's, we see in the Bible it's the same. All right, so you've got some people that don't believe in the devil or demons at all. Then others that believe they're real, and they're still very real. They're still in a big battle. And then there's the view that, um, view three, Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are all real beings, but they were all defeated and destroyed in A.D. 70. This is the view that I hold, okay? The view of many today is that whatever happened in the Gospels or in the book of Acts is intended to describe Christianity as it ought to be in every age. So is it normal to have problems with demons? I've been a Christian for 47 years, and I've never encountered a demon. I've met a lot of people who I questioned about that, but uh, I've never met a demon, okay? Not one. So how normal is it to have problems with demons? 
And people talk about demonic possession today. And, oh, this demon will take over. We need to understand that most of the New Testament references to demon possession appear in the Gospels, and they represent the outburst of satanic opposition to the work of Yeshua. God was walking on earth. We have no reference to demon possession after the book of Acts. And we don't have much reference to it in the latter half of the book of Acts. We encounter occult practices, magicians, and others who dabble in dark power, but seldom an evil spirit who has taken over a life. We have no reference whatsoever to demon possession in the epistles. None of them. We have no reference in the Old Covenant to demon possession either. It seems to be something that happened during the time of Christ and the apostles for the purpose of manifesting the power of Christ over this demonic world. Now, we saw in the text in Mark that demons are to be destroyed. We see the same idea in Matthew 8.28. He says, And when he came into the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demonic possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass this way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So we got these two demons... In other texts, it tells us they were chained and they would break the chains. No one could bind them. Are these people superhuman, strong people or something? They just can't be bound. The demons understood the mission of Yeshua to destroy them. Notice the final words, before the time. Presumably the time of judgment at the consummation of the ages. The destruction of Satan and demons was prophesied from the beginning. We go back to the first, the Proto-Evangelum. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of Christ overcoming Satan. And one of the aspects of Christ's earthly ministry was to destroy the devil. So I ask people often, was Christ a failure in his mission? Most Christians act like he was because they're still all worried about the devil. I think we want him to still be around. I think a lot of people, you know, the devil's like a crutch. you got to have someone to blame. It wasn't me. The devil made me do it. You remember Flip Wilson and that whole thing, you know. People are still doing that today, you know. So, yeah, I take your crutch away. All right. Look at 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil were to separate men from God. Christ destroyed that. Destroy here is luo. It means to loosen, to destroy, to dissolve, to put off. Christ said to have destroyed the works of the devil. Do you believe it? Again, most people act like, no, he, the Satan is just out there still as powerful. Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is spiritual powers. According to my Bible, Satan is a defeated foe. Yeshua has conquered and destroyed the devil. Now, all Christians, I think, believe that Satan, is, if they believe in Satan, believe in his demons will be destroyed, but they're not sure, of course, when that's going to happen. You know, someday God's going to do that, they think. And most Christians look for this event to happen in the future, and the earth's all going to be burned up and everything's going to be destroyed. But let's look at some scripture where Paul talks about this happening. In Romans 16, 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Yeshua, the Christ, be with you. Now, the Greek word for crusher, suntribo, it means to crush completely, to shatter. When is it that Satan is said to be crushed completely? It says soon. It's at the end of the Old Covenant when the Lord returned in judgment on Israel. Uh, Paul here says to the Roman Christians that it's going to happen soon. The Greek word translated soon is tachos. And according to Art and Gingrich lexicon, tachos is used in the Septuagint and non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. In other words, this is, he's going to do this soon. Not a long time, not 2,000 years you have to wait. Do you think that believers at Rome could have conceived of 2,000 plus years as being soon? Because if you said, this is going to happen in 2,000 years, I don't care. Do you care what's going to happen in 2,000 years? Why would you? <laughs> I mean, and if it was to be in 2,000 years, how could he crush them under their feet? They wouldn't have feet. They'd be dust. <laughs> They're gone, all right? So Paul tells the first century Roman Christians that Satan would soon be crushed completely. Now, if you hold a view one, you say, okay, that means he's going to destroy the Jews. Because the Jews are Satan. Now listen, I agree with that. Hang on, because we'll talk about this a little more in a second. But I, I see their point there, and I think their point is right there. They just don't carry it far enough. If Satan is still around, we have a problem with inspiration. Okay? Which is a huge problem, because if the Bible's not inspired by God, it's no value to us. I believe that Satan is a defeated foe, and I believe that because I believe in inspiration. Now, the Bible talks about the judgment at the end of the age, not the end of the world. In Matthew 13, 40, it says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. So Yeshua is talking here about something that's going to happen at the end of the age, the age he was living in, the Jewish age, the old covenant age, when the wicked Jews were going to be burned in the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be burned up, they're going to be part of it. So my position is, Satan and the demons were real spiritual beings who opposed Yeshua and his people, but through the ministry of Christ they were defeated and destroyed in AD 70. The spiritual battle that the first century Christians faced is over. We're not battling spiritual forces today. We need to be really thankful about that. Now, having said that, let's go back to our text again. Satan hindered us. The word hindered here is the Greek word enkopto. It's a military term used for the destruction of roads and bridges to stop the enemy from advancing. The enemy's coming in, you blow up all your roads, you blow up your bridges, they can't get to you. Okay? That's this word here. So Satan is blowing up stuff so Paul can't get to the Thessalonians. And here, here I, I thought about this. He says, Satan hindered us. And I thought, you know, why didn't Paul just say to Satan, I bind you by the blood of Yeshua? Oh, that's right. He hadn't watched any televangelists, okay? He didn't know you could do that. He didn't know that's all you needed was a little magical formula. And you say blood, and boy, the demons run, okay? I don't know where you see that in the Bible, but somehow we got that. Okay, they're afraid of the word blood, and they flee like crazy, all right? All right, those who hold the view one would say that when Paul says Satan hindered us, he's referring to the Jewish opposition. The Jewish opposition he had encountered previously from Thessalonica. And I agree, there's no question that the Jews were his enemies. 
I mean, we saw this, 2.14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So in verse 14, he mentions the Jews, and then he launches into this diatribe against them in verse 15 and 16. Just They killed the prophets, they killed the Lord, they hindered us. They, you know. So I agree with them that, listen, the Jews were actively opposing Paul. But they would say, here's the difference, that they would say that was just Jewish people. There's no supernatural being involved. I would disagree. Though it was the Jewish people hindering Paul, I believe that behind the Jewish people was the supernatural being of Satan who was using the Jews to accomplish his purpose. All right? So Satan, he says here, Satan, but he just, he's just been talking about the opposition from the Jews. So it's not a leap to think, well, the Jews are Satan. Yet he, Satan is using them, but they don't think there's a supernatural being. It's just the Jews on their own are just evil and they're doing this. All right. Look at Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is talking about spiritual warfare with spiritual beings. Cosmic powers is cosmocurator, and it's use of spirit beings. They're spiritual forces. They're in heavenly places. Now, let me ask you this, though. Is Paul saying that we have no struggle with rebellious men and sinful people? Uh, he just got done saying the Jews are opposing us, okay? They're doing all. So yes, he knew that we're fighting with people. He is saying that behind the scenes, working through these people, was a world system and super powerful demonic forces. Notice what Yeshua says. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking here about Satan, but let me ask you this. Did Satan rule the whole world? No. The word world here is used of the Roman Empire. Very important. This is the world that he offered to Yeshua if he would worship him. Now notice what we see in the book of Daniel. Daniel 10.20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I get out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. Now, what's going on here is Mike Gabriel, the archangel, is talking to Daniel. And he tells them, these divine hosts of heaven are allotted with authority over pagan nations. They're depicted as spiritual princes or rulers battling with the archangels Gabriel and Michael. This is a spiritual battle. We got the prince of Persia. We got the prince of Greece. These are not human beings. These are supernatural forces that they're fighting. Now, some Second Temple non-canonical Jewish texts illustrate an ancient tradition of understanding this interpretation of gods of the nations as real spirit beings that rule over those nations. So they understood we have a king, we have a ruler, but there's also spirit forces behind this governing the king, ruling over the people. Jubilees 15, 31, and 32. There are many nations and many people, and they all belong to him, Yahweh. But over all of them, he caused spirits to rule so that they might lead them astray from following him. But over Israel, he did not cause an angel or spirit to rule because he alone is their ruler and he will protect them. Again, the idea of Israel is God's people. He is their Elohim. 
Other nations have other Elohim. Okay, now think with me. If the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, if, if Persia and Greece had princes or watchers behind them that Michael was fighting with, do you think that maybe Rome had a watcher or a prince over them that Paul was having to deal with here? Who do we see Michael fighting in Revelation 12? Now, war arose in heaven. Get that, okay? This is not on the ground. This is in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. Here, he connects the serpent with the devil, with Satan. He puts them all together. It's all the same being. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. Again, by the whole world, he's talking about the Roman Empire. we got to pay attention. Where was this war taking place? It's taking place in heaven. In Revelation, Michael is depicted as warring on behalf of Israel, 12.7. He is called Israel's protector. In Daniel 12.1, Michael is the patron angel of Israel. So Israel's protector is fighting Rome's prince, Satan. Spiritual warfare. It seems as though Satan has moved from adversary in the divine council to the supernatural power behind Rome. He's the watcher. He's the one over the nation Rome. Now, most scholars of Revelation teach that the beast represents Rome and the dragon that gives power to the beast is Satan. It seems as if this watcher, known as Satan, has now turned against Yahweh, he's ruling over Rome, and he's trying to destroy Yeshua and God's people. This whole, the whole demonic thing, and this is one of the reasons I think that the battle is all over, because it was accomplished. Their whole mission was to stop Yeshua from dying for mankind. To re- of course, they didn't know that, that he had to die because they put him to death foolishly thinking they were gonna, that was solving something. They were just carrying out the plan of God. But from the very beginning, they wanted to stop it. Okay, God brings man into, his, into the Garden of Eden to have fellowship with him. So the watchers say, we can't handle this. We've got to get rid of this. So they tempt he sins, God kicks him out. They're like, cool, we got him kicked out. Then God makes a plan, Genesis 3.15. We're going to have, you know, a Redeemer's going to come. So in Genesis 6, they come from heaven. They mate with women trying to corrupt the human line so the Yeshua can't come through it. And you see this whole thing. Then, then as Christ comes to earth, they're all battling. They're trying to stop redemption. Once Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, There's, they have no point. Their battle is over. They are defeated. Battle won. Battle done. They go on fighting for the next 40 years, okay, until God puts an end to it, but there's no point today. They can't stop redemption. It's over, all right? Now, many texts where Satan is mentioned, it can be talking about people that Satan was using behind the scenes, but he is the spiritual power. He's the divine being. So when these people say, well, I think this is referring to the Jews, I just say, I agree. Because the Bible says that Jews were doing that. But behind them, Paul says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Meaning that we, they're not our enemy, but meaning there's more behind that. There's a spiritual battle taking place. Satan, Paul says, hindered us. 
So when he says that Satan is hindering, he understands that behind these Jews that are doing everything they can, because they hate the gospel, they hate what Paul was doing, they hate the fact that Gentiles are coming to Christ, who's supposed to be their Messiah. And they don't have to come through the door of Judaism. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the law. They just need faith in Christ. They don't like that, so they're fighting all they can. Behind them, hindering everything that's going on, we got this a supernatural being of Satan. So they're not totally out to lunch when they try to make it all human. They are out to lunch when they say there's no spiritual force behind it. Okay, He's hindering them. And he's using the Jews in Thessalonica. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning again for the opportunity, for the privilege, for the freedom to look at your word. Lord, I understand it's a controversial subject when you're talking about Satan, and I just pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. May we not buy this, may we not reject this, may we dig into this and see if these things are so. Father, I thank you that you have given each and every believer the Spirit of God to direct us, to lead us, to guide us. May we call out to you for wisdom for direction, and may we search the Scriptures diligently, Lord, to see if these things are so. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. Okay, questions. And just to jump ahead of the questions, ladies, no, your husband is not demon-possessed. Shelly says, Marv says he has met a demon. I hope he's not talking about you, Shelly. <laughs> uh, I know he's not. <laughs> okay. Um, John says, I'm a little rusty here, but I think God limited man's time to 120 years after the flood. The law of God is perfect, and Moses, as its representative, lived the full 120 years. However, the law could not get us into the promised land, the heavens, so Moses could only look into it. Joshua took the people only as Joshua can take us in the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're making a lot of spiritual analogies behind, I guess, my comment about Moses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. There's, there's a lot behind that. And uh, I, I tell you what, though, I think that Man could live much longer than he does if he ate right and took care of himself. I mean, there's people that do live that long. I guess the anomaly is a lot of the, they, they, they interview a lot of these people that are over 100 years old. Oh, how'd you do it? And, oh, I drank bourbon every night and smoked three cigars. And you're like, wow, okay, none of that, none of that makes any sense. But yeah, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, variables here. But I'll tell you what, I really think the, the solution to health is not some drugs that the pharmacy is offering. It's some good food to give you the nutrition you need to keep going. All right, good question. I, I can always anticipate this. It says, how do you explain personal testimonials of people who will say that they have seen demons appearing to them or of other experiences of either a physical encounter with the evil or an overwhelming sense of evil presence? I have a family member who was involved in the occult before fully believing in Christ. You know, here's one thing. I don't ever try to argue with someone's experience because it's your experience. I can't argue with it. I've had experiences myself when I was in high school, experimented with LSD, 
I did see some weird things and felt some weird things, okay? <laughs> I don't think they were demons. I think the drugs were messing with my mind. There's all kinds of things. You know, depending on your belief system. Again, if you're open to whatever and you read Wynne Worley's book, Diary of an Exorcist, it'll scare you to death and you will see demons and feel them everywhere. <laughs> you will. I'm telling you. The my, I, We've gone over this a lot of times. But the mind is a powerful thing. And if you believe Satan, you believe this is Satan, that's Satan. Again, my perfect example is pseudosiesis. You guys got to know what that is by now. Pseudosiesis. It's a medical term for a fake pregnancy. The woman's abdomen swells. Her breasts get tender. She has all the experiences of pregnancy. She's not pregnant. She just thinks she is. It's called pseudosiesis. If the mind is that powerful, people... Can you see things and experience things? I mean, if your belly can swell and you got all these signs of pregnancy, you're not pregnant. Your mind's making that up. The mind is so powerful. That's why education is so important and truth is so important. You understand this stuff, you know. But yeah, people have experiences. The interesting thing to me is most of these experiences are in third world countries. You know? I mean, you don't see too many demon things here. Of course, again, when I was in the charismatic movement, read a lot of stuff. You know, think about demons and, you know, all these testimonies of, you know, uh, this guy was trying to cast out demons and the guy was screaming because the demons were holding on to his testicle cords. And and so it was hurting the guy when the demon was trying to come out. And I'm like, really? And and in in the book, listen, when Worley talks about the demon of oily hair and the demon of dry hair. And so when the woman would treat her oily hair, the demon of dry hair would take over. And when she tried to treat her dry hair, the demon of oily hair would take over. Okay, and to me, okay, how much nonsense can you get? You know, how much can you just blame demons for everything that happens? All right, so I don't try to argue with people's experience. I try to stick to the Word of God and just say, here's what the Bible teaches. What you believe is up to you, and what happens to you, I can't, you know, I'm not going to argue with. But why is it happening? Again, the mind is a very powerful thing, and if your belief system's wrong, it will flat mess you up. I'm telling you, in a minute, it'll mess you up. Is Satan connected to the deception of Eve, as we are told, or do you believe Enoch's story? No, I think Mastema, which you know the pseudepigrapher calls him, was in the garden. He was a divine being. He wasn't a snake, okay? He wasn't a slithering serpent, all right? That the word serpent's a triple entendre, and it has the idea of shining and beautiful. Okay, one of the uses of it. So, he is a divine being. Do you think he's sitting there talking to a snake? But she's familiar with divine beings because they dwell in the garden. And this divine being said, hey, did God really tell you that? And so she's questioning this, and, and so I think, yeah. I think, I think that text we read in Revelation 12 connects the serpent to the devil and Satan all the way back to the garden. Oh, so the question here, so does God have your days numbered or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. He has your days numbered. Okay? You have an appointment with death. And so I assumed this. It says, regardless of what health food you eat. Well, here's, here's where I would disagree. No, here's where I would disagree with that. And if you read Calvin's Institute, Calvin gets into this, and it's really interesting. You know, Calvin says, God uses means to accomplish his end. 
And that means might be you taking care of yourself to get to that end. Your appointment is going to come up. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of beyond your mind can start really stretching. But, okay, we, let's not even talk about death. Let's just say if you eat right, guess what? You can do stuff you want to do in life. Yeah, <laughs> until your appointed time. And then you're going. But till then, I see some people that just, they have no quality of life because their lifestyle has destroyed them. And yeah, I mean, you get, you know, I, I've seen that a couple of times in my 600-pound life. And I just, I grieve for those people. I feel bad. I don't think that's normal. I think there's something wrong there. It's not, I don't think most of us could just eat so much that we could get that big. I don't think we could do that. I think there has to be some kind of a thyroid or some, some kind of problems to allow you to get to that size. But listen, people, when you get to the size that you can't get out of bed to get your own food, somebody's messing up by bringing you food. Okay? <laughs> somebody's messing up. All right? And it's, it's overcomable. I have a, a Facebook friend who he was bedridden for six years, never left his room for six years in the bed. Finally, he got an exercise system with bands and started working out and started dieting, and he worked out, and then he told the story of he stood up today. First day he's been on his feet, you know, and then I walked a couple steps around the room. Then I left the room for the first time in six years, and then he's got videos of him walking through the park, and he's constantly losing weight, you know, and he's just lost hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and yeah, it's possible. It's not easy. Okay, I tell you, the battle with weight is, it's a battle, and it never ends, you know, and I, <laughs> and I fight it all the time. I'm a foodie, I love to eat, and I have to buffet my body to keep it from eating everything it wants, because I'm trying to, when I put on some weight, all I need to do is put on 20 pounds, and my blood pressure goes up, start snoring like crazy at night, I start feeling bad, um, well, it was back in 2011, I was 200 pounds, and I'm 5'7", so that's a lot of weight for a 5'7", okay? And I said, yeah, this is probably too much weight. So I went on a diet, I lost 50 pounds, I pretty much kept it off most of the time. Some snuck back during COVID, but I got rid of most of that now too, but it affects how you feel. It affects your body, it affects many things. So yeah, just eating healthy makes a difference, okay? Um, you can eat whatever you want. But I, it makes a difference for me anyway. Okay, yeah, this is another question I get a lot. Trying to explain to a friend who believes the devil is in control today due to all the evil. I say it's just man's evil heart, not demonic. And that is so true. All right, James says every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God said the thoughts of man are only evil continually. We don't need a demon. We don't need a devil. We are corrupt. And I, I know you look at, especially just look at D.C. You see corruption at its finest, okay? I mean, sick people, the more power, the more depraved, the more money, it seems like the more depraved. It is a sickening thing, and, and I'd want to think there's some power behind that. And I'm not saying evil is not organized because these evil people work together. I don't think there's any doubt. All right. But there's a lot of evil in this world and it is sickening. And there's so much going on right now with child trafficking that, you know, I, and I believe in the near future, it's going to all be exposed and you're going to be 
un, you're not going to believe what, what they've found and what they've stopped. But this is sickening stuff that's going on, the people hurting children, you know, for their own gratification. It just, I put my name in, and I said I will provide my own ammunition, ammunition to be part of the firing squad for pedophiles. So what was that bumper sticker, Kaylin? It said, uh, dead, dead pedophiles don't reoffend. Amen. Amen. Oh, I'm getting into politics. Sorry. Did you have, did you have a question? <laughs> really, it's not politics. Okay, this is just evil, sin, biblical, and evil should be stopped. It's what's happening today. It's absolutely what's happening, and evil needs to be stopped. Okay? And good men have to be involved in stopping the evil, not ignoring it, not pretending it doesn't exist, but speaking out against it and doing what you can to stop it. Do you have a question? Violenceness of the church. Um, no, I had a comment. I can't remember exactly now, but when you were talking about mental uh, demons, they were attributing demonic possession to sickness or mental illness or something like that. So, like, so the demon it, by the, uh, the Christ cast out into the herd of swine. They, all of a sudden, those swine were All those pigs hill. got mental illness. Yeah. And they ran down the hill and did a swine dive. <laughs> 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 Jeff. <laughs> Stan? I think it was, what, the Toklo, if I'm not mistaken? And he said, all it takes for evil is to continue. It's for good men to do nothing. That's for sure. Well, that's it. Who's going to stop evil? I mean, that's what the church is here for. We're to be the conscience of the world. We're to speak up. We're to talk. But see, they're trying to silence us. Because now, and people are afraid, because if you speak out against the evil of the day, if you say a man is a man and a woman is a woman, that is just so contrary to what's going on today. But that's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah, but see that, you know, when Jackson made that statement, when she said, I'm not a biologist, I can't tell you what a woman is. She made it very clear that male and female is about biology. And I thought that was a great statement because I'm like, oh, so you're admitting it's biology. Because the, the left doesn't say it's biology. It's whatever you want to be. Biology has no play in it. She refuted the left and she's the left as you can get. And she's a pedophile loving sick human being that uh, oh, no, again, that's not politics. It's Bible. We got to stand against evil. We got to combat evil. We got to do what we can do. And and you know, again, I, if it goes on the way it is, you speak out against homosexuality or transgenderism or any of this stuff, you get arrested. You get arrested. Yeah, we get and we get kicked off YouTube, but not Rumble. <laughs> Rumble won't kick us off.